Good evening. New York makes vaccinations mandatory for all city workers. The Parkland shooter pleads guilty. A voting rights bill is voted down. The Oath Keepers of the GOP as the Senate begins the process to subpoena a former Trump advisor. What did he know about the January 6th invasion of the Capitol? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. A Brazilian Senate report recommended pursuing crimes against humanity and other charges against President Jair Bolsonaro for allegedly bungling Brazil's response to COVID-19 and contributing to the country having the world's second highest pandemic death toll just behind the United States. Bolsonaro has consistently downplayed the threat of the coronavirus and touted misinformation and unproven COVID-19 treatments while ignoring international health guidelines on mask use and public activity. The 11-member Senate panel examined whether his actions caused many of Brazil's more than than 600,000 COVID-19 deaths. The far-right Brazilian leader has repeatedly described the Senate investigation as a political instrument aimed at sabotaging him and denied any wrongdoing. And the Food and Drug Administration has approved mixing COVID vaccines and boosters for the Moderna, Johnson and Johnson and Johnson jabs. The FDA decisions mark a big step towards expanding the U.S. booster campaign, which began with extra doses of the Pfizer vaccine last month, expanding by tens of millions the number of Americans eligible for boosters and making it simpler to get another dose, especially for people who had a side effect from one brand but still want the proven protection of vaccination. One big change, Moderna's booster will be half the dose that's used in the first two shots based on company data showing that it was plenty strong enough to rev up the immune system. Meanwhile, the White House announced today that children ages 5 to 11 will soon be able to get a COVID-19 shot at their pediatrician's office, local pharmacy, and potentially even their school. The Pfizer shot is expected to be approved for elementary school youngsters in a matter of weeks. And closer to home, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced today that all city workers must have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by 5 p.m. on October 29th in order to work. Our health commissioner issuing an order requiring all city workers to be vaccinated. This will apply to all the agencies that are not covered yet. And we want to move quickly. Obviously, we've given people a lot of time. It's time to keep moving. So for the vast majority of the workforce not yet vaccinated, the deadline is 5 p.m. on Friday, October 29th. Health Commissioner David Chakshi made the official announcement. I am issuing a commissioner's order mandating vaccination for city workers. Allow me to pay homage for a moment for all my fellow public servants have done to keep our city safe and running. Firefighters, sanitation workers, police officers, and inspectors. This is a necessary step to further ensure their safety and to help protect those whom we serve. As the mayor said, city workers will have to submit proof of vaccination by 5 p.m. on Friday, October 29th. You can provide proof of full vaccination or your first dose. Once you've submitted proof of your first dose, if you've received Moderna or Pfizer, you'll have to provide proof of a second dose within 45 days. To the over 71% of city workers who fall under this mandate and are already vaccinated, you have my heartfelt appreciation. For those who have yet to get vaccinated, know that we are here to answer your questions and support you in making this important decision. 
Health Commissioner Dr. David Chokshi, as of Tuesday, 84% of the city's workforce had gotten at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. The NYPD, the FDNY, and the Department of Sanitation have lagged behind the overall rate. In a statement, Police Benevolent Association President Patrick Lynch says his union, representing more than 50,000 active and retired NYPD officers, would proceed with legal action to protect our members' rights. And in more news from Washington, Senate Democrats tried to pass sweeping elections legislation today as a counterweight to new voting restrictions sweeping conservative-controlled states. Once again, Republicans blocked them. It was the third failure to pass a bill this year. After the vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer invoked Reconstruction following the Civil War, hailing the northern senators serving at that time for going it alone when confronted by minority obstruction. Vice President Kamala Harris echoed the sentiment. The state Senate and members of the United States Senate had an opportunity to uphold the importance of every American's right to exercise their fundamental right in a democracy, which is the right to vote. We're not going to give up. We're not deterred. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think it's really a sad day. We have seen these moments before. I'd like to think that we have evolved as a nation and that we would not have to return to a moment where the United States Senate would have to debate, yet in this situation fail as a body to even move forward protections as it relates to the right to vote. The Democrats' voting bill was first introduced in March in the wake of the January 6th Capitol attack. It quickly passed the House at a time when Republican-controlled legislatures, many inspired by Donald Trump's false claims of a stolen 2020 election, were passing laws that made it much harder to vote in those states. And in Florida, Nicholas Cruz pleaded guilty today to murdering 17 people during a rampage at his former high school in Parkland, leaving a jury to decide whether he'll be executed for one of the nation's deadliest school shootings. Relatives of the victims who sat in the courtroom and watched the hearing via Zoom broke down in tears and held hands across families as Cruz entered his pleas and later apologized for his crimes. To count one of the indictment, murder in the first degree of victim Luke Hoyer, how do you wish to plead? Guilty. Count 25, attempted murder in the first degree of Samantha Grady, how do you wish to plead? Guilty. Count 26, attempted murder in the first degree of Samantha Fuentes, how do you wish to plead? Guilty. Count 34, attempted murder in the first degree of Kyle Lehman, how do you wish to plead? Guilty. I accept your plea of guilty. I find that you are alert and intelligent, that you have made an informed decision with the advice of counsel. May I take off my mask? Sure. I am very sorry for what I did, and I have to live with it every day, and that if I were to get a second chance, I will do everything in my power to try to help others. And I am doing this for you, and I do not care if you do not believe me. And I love you, and I know you don't believe me, but I have to live with this every day. And brings me nightmares, and I can't live with myself sometimes. And I'm a mandatory prison. The guilty pleas will set the stage for a penalty trial in which 12 jurors will determine whether Cruz, who's 23, should be sentenced to death or life in prison without parole. Outside, a survivor, Anthony Burgess, and his father, Roy, said they're just looking for closure. I'm not got to take the decision, like, to kill her or not. That's not my decision. My decision is to be a better person and be, like, to change the world. And every kid, like, I don't want nobody to, like, happen this again. 
Like it hurts. It hurts. It really hurts. It's really hard for as a parents. It's really hard. I, I'm. I can. I can compare myself. You know, with the other parents because Anthony is still here. So my mission is as a parent of the victim, and he's alive. Fight for him. We need to heal. We need to heal like uh, like as a community. We need to heal like as a person and go forward. Crews killed 14 students and three staff members on Valentine's Day 2018 during a seven-minute rampage through a three-story building at Stoneman Douglas. They said the investigator said he shot victims in the hallways and in classrooms with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, sometimes returning to the wounded to kill them with additional shots. Crews had been expelled from Stoneman Douglas a year earlier after a history of threatening, frightening, unusual, and sometimes violent behavior that dated back to preschool. The shootings caused some Stoneman Douglas students to launch the March for Our Lives movement, which pushes for stronger gun restrictions nationally. And in more news from the nation's capital, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, received a form, uh, warm welcome by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today at his confirmation at his confirmation hearing for the post of ambassador to Japan, smoothing the way to his expected confirmation. But the support came despite opposition from progressives who feel he could have done more as mayor of Chicago to push for racial justice and police reform. Only one senator, Oregon Democrat Jeff Merkley, questioned Emmanuel at length about the 2014 fatal shooting of Laquan McDonald, a black teenager, by a white police officer. Watchdog investigations revealed a cover-up by the Chicago police involving top brass, but Emmanuel noted that neither he nor his office was found to have done anything improper in the McDonald killing and ensuing cover-up and investigations. And more from Capitol Hill, Senate appropriators are suggesting a nearly $24 billion increase in the defense budget. The, de- the, pardon me, the Senate Appropriations Committee unveiled a close to $726 billion budget for the Defense Department in 2022, putting a large chunk of those extra funds in the procurement of new aircraft and ships. It's an increase over the Biden administration's requested of about $706 billion for the DOD. The increase in the budget comes despite a decrease in expenditures with the end of the Afghan war. Yesterday's debt of uh, pardon me, yesterday's death of former Joint Chiefs Chair and Secretary of State Colin Powell has put the massive U.S. defense budget in focus. Bill Story is a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Air Force. He says Powell was complicated, but the increased budget is unnecessary. Powell, I have mixed feelings. I think he was basically an honorable and decent man. I remember serving under him when I was in the military. He himself admitted that he made a major mistake when he allowed himself or he willingly, more or less willingly, signed up to sell the Iraq war in 2003. He was wrong about weapons of mass destruction, and that war was a calamity. So Colin Powell has to take responsibility for that, and I believe he did take responsibility. I wouldn't lionize the man. That was a major flaw, and I think Colin Powell would admit it as well. There's a lot of pressure to give the commanders what they want to hear, which just makes the situation worse. And I can think of William Westmoreland in Vietnam as a perfect example. It's absolutely right. Westy, William Westmoreland, he had a very traditional view of war. He basically thought that he could win the Vietnam War, which was a revolutionary war, by attrition. 
So he invented this metric known as the body count. And what happened was his subordinates just fed him lies about the body count. They just told him what he wanted to hear. And then he told Congress and the American people what we wanted to hear, and that is that we're winning the Vietnam War when, of course, we were losing it. General Milley, a guy who allegedly, according to the story, after not standing up to Trump, eventually did stand up to Trump and even went so far as to tell uh, Woodward that Trump was, in his mind, a classic fascist in the Hitler mold. Is that a change in uh, culture that's going on right now? I mean, is the, is the military the new fourth branch of government? If that's true, we're really in trouble because someone like General Milley, he is uh, basically the head of the U.S. Uh, national security state, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, to state the obvious. We're supposed to have civilian control of the military uh, within the United States. And to have a general, no matter how he couches it, you know, saying, well, I, you know, I did this because I was afraid of Trump or I feared what he might do, obviously that sets a very dangerous precedent. Assuming that is what Milley did, it all seems a little bit murky. Taiwan and China, and also Afghanistan. I mean, the military didn't want to leave Afghanistan. We're going to shift to another place, one war, not learning anything from it to the next. Well, I certainly fear that. What gets me is that here we have the end of the Afghan war. You would think that we would get some kind of a peace dividend and we could reduce the defense budget. But instead, we, we see that the latest de defense budget has actually gone up $10 billion more than the Pentagon actually requested. Now it's $726 billion, which is an almost unimaginable sum. And one of the ways they justify these huge increases is to say, okay, the Afghan war is over, but now we have to worry about China in a possible war with Taiwan. So that means, oh my goodness, we need even more weaponry. And that's a classic case of threat inflation. And today it was a photograph of a B-1 bomber being refueled in the Black Sea while Soviet fighter jets were bu was buzzing it. That's exactly right. Only 30 years ago, we were supposed to have won the Cold War. And all of this brinksmanship with sending out B-52 bombers and B-1 bombers, you know, right off the coast of Russia, all of that was supposed to come to an end. And yet we still see the same kind of provocations coming from the United States as a show of power. I don't think we would appreciate Chinese bombers off of uh, Boston and New York City. You know, we would see that as a highly aggressive act, just as other countries see what we do as an aggressive act. Mm -hmm. This needs to stop. You just never know when you have forces like the United States has deployed around the world and you're conducting provocative acts, whether it's in the, the South China Sea or the Black Sea, right off the coast of Russia and China and these other countries, you just never know what might happen that could trigger another war. And that is Bill Astoria. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A congressional committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection has moved aggressively against Trump advisor Steve Bannon, swiftly scheduling a vote to recommend criminal contempt charges against the former White House aide after he defied a subpoena. A recorded vote is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mr. Aguilar, aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. 
Mrs. Murphy, aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mr. Raskin, aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mrs. Luria, aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Aye. Mr. Kinzinger, aye. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes, zero noes. The motion is agreed to. The chairman of the special committee, Mississippi Democrat, Representative Benny Thompson, is chair of the committee. He says Bannon's refusal to testify is disrespect of the law. We do know that there was a powerful push to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 election. Americans have been and continue to be lied to about that. We know that ultimately there was a violent attack that interfered with the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another. We know that lies about the outcome of that election haven't gone away. And now we have a key witness who's flat out refusing to comply with a congressional subpoena and cooperate with our investigation. The rule of law remains under attack right now. If there are no accountability for these abuses, if there are different sets of rules for different types of people, then our democracy is in serious trouble. As chair of this committee, I won't allow further harm to the rule of law in the course of our work. Mr. Bannon will comply with our investigation or he will face the consequences. Maybe he's willing to be a martyr to the disgraceful cause of whitewashing what happened on January 6th or demonstrating his complete loyalty to the former president. So I want our witnesses to understand something very plainly. If you are thinking of following the path Mr. Bannon has gone down, you are on notice that this is what you'll face. The process we begun tonight is a grave one. It seldom happens, and we'd rather avoid it altogether. But it's not reserved just for Steve Bannon. If other witnesses defy this committee, if they fail to cooperate, we will be back in this room with a new report with the names of whoever else mistakenly believes that they are above the law. We hope no other witnesses put themselves in the situation Mr. Bannon has through his own conduct, but we cannot allow anyone to stand in the way of the select committee as we work to get to the facts. The stakes are just too high. We won't be deterred. We won't be distracted, and we won't be delayed. I urge my colleagues to support the favorable adoption of this report. It's now my pleasure to yield to the distinguished vice. And Mississippi Democrat, Representative Benny Thompson, committee vice chair is Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who has led opposition to Trump in the Republican Party. Cheney says there's much to be learned from Bannon, especially about the role of former President Trump in stirring up the rioters. The day before this all occurred, on January 5th, Mr. Bannon publicly professed knowledge that, quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow, end quote. He forecast that the day would be, quote, extraordinarily different than what most Americans expected. 
He said to his listeners and his viewers, quote, so many people said, if I was in a revolution, I would be in Washington. Well, he said, this is your time in history. Based on the committee's investigation, it appears that Mr. Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6th and likely had an important role in formulating those plans. Mr. Bannon was in the war room at the Willard on January 6th. He also appears to have detailed knowledge regarding the president's efforts to sell millions of Americans the fraud that the election was stolen. In the words of many who participated in the January 6th attack, the violence that day was in direct response to President Trump's repeated claims from election night through January 6th that he had won the election. The American people are entitled to Mr. Bannon's firsthand testimony about all of these relevant facts. Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Dozens of members of the group known as the Oath Keepers have been arrested in connection to the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, some of them looking like a paramilitary group wearing camo helmets and flak vests. But a list of more than 35,000 members of the Oath Keepers obtained by an anonymous hacker and shared with the news agency ProPublica by a whistleblower. The whistleblower group, Distributed Denial of Secrets, underscores how the organization is evolving into a force within the Republican Party. The author of the article is Isaac Arnsdorf. They focus specifically on recruiting law enforcement and military veterans. And the way that they appeal to people with those backgrounds is that when they served, they swore an oath to defend the Constitution, and just because they're not on active duty anymore or they're, they don't have a badge and a gun anymore, that oath didn't expire. And that being an oath keeper, just like you know the name sort of implies, is a way to, to continue to uphold that pledge to the Constitution. But then, and on its surface, that sounds like, well, you know, what could be wrong with that? Everyone supports the Constitution. But the, the pledge that oath keepers commit to when they join starts to go a little bit off to the right from there. So it starts talking about if you get an unconstitutional order to impose martial law or take away people's guns or for the federal government to invade a state, it just starts pushing further into this realm of right-wing conspiracy theory. And that's how it kind of warps from the oath that public servants swear to the country to a pledge that they make to something that's like a different idea. Do they think the Democratic Party are communists and have to be defended against? There are 35,000 people on this list, so you know it's hard to generalize what all of them do or don't believe in other than the commitment that they all made in order to get on the list. I talked to, to dozens of people who I called and asked them about it, and I, and I did hear a lot of that. So they fear that the ideals that they hold dear to their lives, their religion, their culture, whatever their race, whatever that might be, is under threat. The leaders of the group, you know, over the summer when there were the, the George Floyd protests, um, they got very animated about that in terms of some members going to, in their view, assist with police to stop 
rioting with how they presented it. And then with the election, they really embraced the leaders of the group, I mean, really embraced the lies about election fraud that Trump was spreading. And then they, they kind of set up January 6th as the last stand to save the republic. And, you know, that was the kind of rhetoric that led to the violence that time. How are they responding to the arrests? And the uh, last night, the January sixth committee was pretty, uh, pretty adamant about going after these kind of Steve Bannon and, by extension, people who share these kind of views. A lot of the people I talked to either said they weren't familiar with the charges against members of the Oath Keepers, or they were withholding judgment until they were convicted, even though some of them had actually pleaded guilty. You know, I also heard a lot of people who were telling me things that they had heard that aren't true in terms of minimizing or denying or kind of rewriting the facts about what actually happened on January 6th. Were they hostile to you as a member of the media? No one was aggressive toward me or rude to me, but, you know, I had a conversation with one guy who is a sitting state lawmaker in North Carolina. He said that the way that he participated in the organization today was by being a state lawmaker. And I asked him about the the members who were arrested in connection with January 6th, and he said, that's just the media trying to malign the entire group based on the actions of a few individuals. And he said, that in his view, the media was the biggest enemy of the republic. The people who are joining or embracing the group are government officials, you know, people in positions of authority who don't view the Oath Keepers as anything they need to be ashamed of, and they're proud to be associated with it. Isaac Arnstorf is author of Oath Keepers in the State House: How a Militia Movement Took Root in the Republican Mainstream on the ProPublica news site. And finally, the City Planning Commission today unanimously approved the plan to rezone Soho and NoHo in Manhattan, despite fierce opposition from the local community board as well as a number of advocacy groups. Eleven commissioners voted in favor of the Soho NoHo neighborhood plan uh, this morning, setting the controversial proposal up for a city council hearing and vote. In a statement released this afternoon, however, Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation Executive Director Andrew Berman blasted the commission's decision. He says the rezoning will threaten hundreds of units of rent-regulated affordable housing in these neighborhoods, driving out the considerable number of older, lower-income, longtime residents. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.